Welcome to the New Freedom Church podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. Well, today we close a series that we began about three months ago on the Holy Spirit. And when we began that series, I knew that I wanted to uh, talk about certain aspects of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Our, Our word for the year this year is presence. And it is recognizing that God is real, active, and at work in our lives in every moment. It doesn't feel like it or it doesn't seem like it necessarily in every moment, but God is active and real. And when I began writing this series, I drew some resources from different works and different things I had preached over the years, and I found so much more than just the gifts of the Spirit as part of this series. What I found was that there are actually three aspects of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and we first discussed the spiritual disciplines. Disciplines of the Spirit are things that you and I do to mimic the way of Jesus, things like prayer and solitude. Things like fasting and, and being gracious and, and the, the way that we, we operate in our own internal personal life. These are spiritual disciplines. There's many of them. There's, there's more than 20 that are listed in the scripture. And so we first looked at spiritual disciplines, things that you and I can do, things that we can embark upon as a goal or as a task that we discipline ourselves to be in the way of Jesus or to be in the flow and in the activity of Jesus. And then, of course, the, the spiritual gifts. We, we covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, uh, the nine uh, gifts of the Spirit. We talked about how those operate in our local church and individually in our lives. And then lastly, we wanted to look at the overlapping of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, with the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, those are things that we have to practice on our own. We have to do those. We have to determine to go ahead and enter in and, and make those happen in our lives. When it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, we are blessed if we operate in more than one of them. I would submit to you that everyone has at least one spiritual gift, for salvation itself is a gift, not naturally, but it is of God. And so all of us that have said yes to the claims of Christ and yes to the salvic blood of Jesus, we know that there is a gift in our lives. And and most of us have many more than those, and maybe we've discovered them, maybe we haven't. But we certainly don't operate in every spiritual gift. There there are gifts, things in the body, and certain ones operate in certain functions. But when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, the amazing thing about the fruit of the Spirit is that it says at the very end of listing these nine fruit, that against these or or with the, the cluster of these fruit, there is no law. And we know that a law is a limit. The law of the land has a limit on how fast you can drive your automobile on certain areas and roadways, and that is the limit. That's not a suggestion. That is the limit. And so when it comes to spiritual fruit, the Bible says that you and I have the ability and really have the command to allow those spiritual fruit to display and to bear in our lives without any one or two or three, but all of them are to be operative and active in our lives. And so today I want us to to close up on the last three uh, spiritual fruit and see in the scripture how that these correspond with our own life. Galatians 5 and 22 
is where we get the most comprehensive list of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm sure that there are more throughout the, the scriptures that we can identify, but these uh, nine are, are uh, paramount. So let's look at those. It says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and here's where we're going to be today, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who are Christ's possessive means that you belong to Jesus. Jesus possesses you. You are his precious possession. How many are glad to be owned by Jesus today? If you are Christ, then it says you have crucified the flesh and its passions, and these fruit are on display in your life. Notice nowhere does it say that you manufacture the fruit. You cannot produce the fruit. But when you stay connected to the vine, which is Jesus, you display, you bear, you put on uh, order for uh, observation and for other people to feed upon the fruit of the Spirit in your life. If we think about a tree and we think about the different fruit that bear on that tree, this is a very unique tree. The fruit of the spirit tree is a very unique tree. If we just imagine what it looks like when all nine of these are blooming and blossoming in our lives. And this is a beautiful tree. This is a colorful tree. This is a luscious and good for fruit and good to eat kind of tree. Now the first set of the three is love, joy, and peace. And we defined those. Uh, this next set is long-suffering, which is also patience, kindness, and goodness. And we, de we describe those. And you can go back in the other weeks if you want to get in detail and find out what each of these are. But the last set of the fruit are found today in faithfulness, which is reliable and true to your word, also defined as loyalty. Reliable. Are you a person who does what you say that you're going to do? Do you follow through on your commitments. This is a, uh, faithfulness is a fruit of the spirit. Gentleness is softness of action or effect. It is really the demeanor or the way in which you are known. Are, are you known to be a gentle or a gruff kind of a person? Gentleness is actually very attractive. We like to be around people who are gentle. And you'll find that at, as a fruit, uh, this is one of those areas that um, can really bring a lot of healing to someone who is going through a difficult season or time in life is that they will be uh, gravitated or, or attracted to someone who displays gentleness. And then the last one is self-control, which is temperate, ability to pursue the important over the urgent. Let me say that again. The ability to, per, to, per, to pursue the important over the urgent. In ministry, many times you will deal with people who are, are bringing to you their problems. They're bringing to you the, the deadline or there's a, a situation that has arisen in their lives and it is an emergency on their part. And many times as a church and as ministry leaders, we spring into action to help people at the point of their needs. There's some times where you just have to jump in and whether you have the right clothes on or not, you are going to get into that emergency and you are going to help them. There are other times when because of a person's pattern of behavior, because of their lifestyle, they will always be bringing you an emergency. And when we see that pattern evolve as people who are of the spirit, then we have to have the tough love sometimes to say something like this. Poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. And so self-control comes into action when we pursue what is important 
over the urgent. Sometimes what is most important is to let someone feel the actions or the choices of their deeds. Sometimes the most important thing is to let them feel the lesson and then they will learn the lesson. And this is how self-control is operational. Uh, But let's go back to the first one. Faithfulness as a fruit is being reliable. Think about a reliable person. Think about someone that you admire for being rock solid, that they can be counted on every single time that you look at their life, you see the display of someone who is reliable. People can count on you to show up and to follow through. Now, the reference here to loyalty is not loyalty to people, but rather loyalty to God. When we think about being faithful, the word loyal comes into mind. Uh, It is not about being loyal to people. It is actually being loyal to God. Because here's what I found. If you are a person who is loyal first to God, if your vertical relationship is in the right order, then your horizontal relationships take care of themselves. When you are loyal to God, you generally will be a loyal uh, uh, individual to other people. But anyone, whether it be an individual, whether it be an organization, whether it be a company, especially whether it be a church or a religious order, if they are making a loyalty demand upon you, if they are making you sign a pledge of loyalty, if they're causing you to feel guilty that you haven't done certain things for and to their organization and you therefore are now disloyal, then you need to be very careful with that kind of thing because it gets cultish. It gets controlling. And that is not a fruit of the Spirit. A fruit of the Spirit, it says, you are reliable first and loyal first only to God. And by result, you will then be loyal to other people. It just happens as a byproduct of first being loyal to the very one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's look at gentleness. As a fruit, this has to do with your demeanor, the way that you operate in your everyday life, the way that you act and how you treat others. Being gentle has a lot to do with your effect or, or your mood, or, or I guess it really comes down even to your personality. Uh, there are certain times in life that even the most gruff among us seem to know that the situation warrants gentleness, like a, a time of a funeral, for example. There, in a time of a funeral, there is a, a, a certain uh, aura of gentleness that we operate in, that we respond with softness, with care, with compassion. This is what gentleness is all about. Gentleness has to do with preferring others over yourself. Gentleness is very lacking in our day. By nature, we are selfish. You don't have to teach the three-year-old to be selfish. The three-year-old knows that's mine, right? The three-year-old knows that. And, but, but sadly, we have some people who 30 years later and 50 years later after being three, not learning the lesson of gentleness, not learning the lesson of surrender, of, of preferring someone else are still in that mode of selfishness. You want a true test of that? Just get on any interstate in and around this area And you can find that there are people who are not very gentle. They don't really prefer others. And I don't know about you, but for me, I don't like that guy that after I've been waiting in the line of bumper-to-bumper traffic, zooms up beside me, puts on his blinker, and tries to wedge in front of me. I don't like that guy. Statistically, though, I have read some articles that it's proven that is actually the faster way to get around a traffic jam than to wait in the line. So any of you that are line waiters, you have... Permission today to zoom around to the front of the line. Let's see how that works for you. Write me a letter. Let me know. 
I guarantee at least half of the time you will not get gentleness. You won't get that person that says, oh, come on in, you can get in front of me. If you're behind that person who is gentle, isn't it aggravating? I mean, the, the guy zooms in front of, and you're like bumper to bumper now. You are not letting them in. And the guy in front of him says, oh, come on in. Oh, you wanna go too? Go. And you're like honking your horn, right? You're gentle, right? It'd been a while since you've been in church. I understand, I know. That's why we're getting this lesson today. But this is effect. This is preferring someone else. If we would do this, there would be a whole lot less road rage on our roadways, would there not? I mean, I've had that person, we live out on State Route 42. And, and I think the posted speed limit is 55, but people have come off the interstate and it's 70 and they still think that they're on the interstate. And so they're still going to that speed. And I'll be doing the speed limit or just a couple above. You know, I'm a good pastor. I only go a couple above. Nine, you're fine. 10, you're mine, right? I know. Um, but that person on 42, one way, one way, you know, each, each way is only one lane. They find that dotted line and sometimes it's the double line. They will pass me at a zooming speed. Do I slow down? Of course I speed up. No, 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 no. I, I'll slow down. I'll let them in front of me because I know that there are three more stoplights between where we are right then and when we get into town. And usually I'm right behind them. They have made one car length difference. So what am I doing when I'm behind them? I'm being gentle with a big old smile on my face. And if they happen to look in their rear view mirror, it's like, yes, I'm still working on displaying the fruit of the spirit. Every now and then, you know, I just, you know, you gotta pray about it. But being gentle is preferring someone over yourself. When was the last time that we have really truly looked at the situation and said, you know what? I don't have to be first in line. I don't have to be the next to get my due. I will just let someone else have their way. This is being gentle. I'm not asking you to be a doormat. I'm not saying that you should let people walk all over you. But a fruit of the spirit is, that's okay. God's in charge. I'm gonna get there when I get there and God's gonna take care of this. That's a life of trust. Do we really trust that God is good? We sing about a good, good father. Do we really trust that God sees all, knows all, and he is in charge of this universe? Then we can be gentle. We can prefer someone over ourselves. The last one is self-control. Now, this one is a full-length message in and of itself. And most of the trouble that we encounter in this life is due to lack of self-control. And the fact is, hear me, we cannot control ourselves by ourselves for very long without the intervention and the help of Father God. Jesus said he would send another comforter. The Holy Spirit is the one activating in our lives and through all of our intellect, through all of our activity that gives us the empowerment to be self-controlled. Because in and of ourselves, we are not very controlled. We don't operate in very good self-control. Pastor John Mark Comer said this statement years ago, and I wrote this down because I think it, it just smacks of so much truth. It says this, your strongest desire is not usually your deepest desire. Let's think about it. Your strongest desire is not usually your deepest desire. Because your strongest desire is to say, you need another piece of that chocolate cake. You need it. 
Self-control says you don't need it, you just want it. But your strongest desire is, but it would taste really good. But your deepest desire, if you really search the depths of your heart, is that you want to be healthy and you want to be fit. And so you don't want to fill your body with all kinds of sugar and all kinds of other toxins that we take in through our food and our, our eating habits. So we have a strong desire for food, but our deepest desire is that we really want to be well. We want to be whole. And so often the urgent, the urges, that which is urgent, overrides what is important or what is the deepest desire. Our strongest desire tells us, hey, Apple just introduced a new iPhone and your 12-month-old phone is obsolete. You need the newest, latest, greatest gadget. That's a strong desire. Your deepest desire is, I really want financial health in my life and I don't have on hand the extra thousand plus dollars to buy that. And so you're balancing this desire, strong, with deep of, well, maybe it's best to wait. Strong desire is, you know, they, they say that um, of those who have engaged in illicit sexual affairs on their spouses, who have stepped out of their marriages, that the in love state lasts about two years, that it's exciting and it's quiet and it's private, and this is something to pursue, and it's a strong desire, and you're getting your needs met because you're not getting them met somewhere else. But really and truly, after that wears off, after, after the the ecstasy of being secret and something new wears off, we find ourselves empty because our deepest desire is truly fidelity and love and a lasting relationship and someone who will fulfill their vows for better or worse in sickness and health, rich or poor, till death do us part. That's really our deepest inmost desire. We have a desire for fidelity and therefore when we're true to our vows, we are operating in self-control because we don't go after the urge of a strong desire. We go with our deepest desire. Now, these three fruit of the Spirit all have to do with personal character and integrity. If you break down these three, you will find that personal character and integrity are the basis of these last three fruit of the Spirit. Now, what is integrity? Integrity has been said that with integrity and character, it is what we do when no one else is watching. Your character and your integrity is what you do when you think no one else is watching. Because newsflash, there is always someone else watching. But it's what we do in the innermost parts. Our personal integrity, get this, integrates us, it brings us together into humanity and wholeness. It's what makes us human is when we are integrated. When we're integrated, we are complete. When something is out of that completeness, it is disintegrated. And so many people today are disintegrated. They're not just disintegrating, they are not unified, they're not integral anymore, they are disintegrated. And it happens slowly, here a little, there a little. We lose our integrity until finally, we barely recognize the person that we used to be. Thus, in our desire to be whole and complete, we end up, instead of turning to God, our maker, we turn to things that are of the world that are other remedies. We turn to retail therapy. 
We turn to things that we can drink or smoke or chew or put into our bodies. We do things that look like they will create an integral or a, a reintegrating, and it actually serves to further disintegrate us. It's like giving a thirsty person salt water. It's wet. It looks desirous, but it makes you want more. And so if, if in this disintegrated uh, way of life, we go after things of the world and not God to integrate us, we will never be integrated again. You know, it's amazing the, um, the theology that you can draw from even simple things like a nursery rhyme, like a little child song. I, I was reminded in writing this, this message about uh, the, the little child's uh, nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. Anybody remember singing that to your children? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men tried to put Humpty together again, but they couldn't. They could not reintegrate him. And the thought occurred to me, of course they couldn't reintegrate him. What do horses and men know about putting together Humpty Dumpty, putting together that egg again? But if perchance they would have taken those broken pieces to the king, all the king's horses, all the king's men. The king is in the story, yet the king is never consulted. The king, Jesus, is in our story. We hear about him all the time, and so often we never even consult him. He is the only one that can put together the broken pieces of our lives. We need to bring all of those pieces, all of our disintegration to him and let him put it back together again. Because the fact is, None of us in this room, none of us watching online would ever pay top dollar for something that is disintegrated. We only pay top dollar for something that is whole, something that is complete. Let's, let's modernize that. Let's bring it up to date. Take a cell phone. We, we all are familiar with them. We have them in our pocket. We have these computers walking with us all the time. I, I have mine, have a minor addiction to it, by the way, actually. I'm always like, checking it. Like, I think they say 2,000 times a day we check it. Let's say you take that cell phone that you just purchased, that shiny new gadget, and you drop it into the river. You're able to retrieve it. You find it. There it is. You, you retrieve it. And then you take it up to the top of the Empire State Building. You toss it over. You go down on the sidewalk, and it's shattered into pieces. Would you pay top dollar for that item? None of us would. Why? Because it's disintegrated. But if you would gather all of the pieces of that cell phone and you would take it back to the manufacturing laboratory, they could identify every piece that is broken, every piece that is shattered, and they could either repair or replace all of those broken pieces. The manufacturer actually has the ability to make a new phone out of all of those broken pieces. You can't do it at home. Your friend can't do it. There's nobody in your circle that has the same kind of capabilities as the manufacturing lab, but they can put it back together again. Here's the good gospel news, that when we bring our broken pieces to King Jesus, when we take our lives to the manufacturing lab of the Spirit of God, then he puts back together, he reintegrates what has been disintegrated. Amen. And whether anyone looked at your broken pieces as valuable or not, or they went shopping for a better product, God never goes shopping for a better product, but he sought you and he bought you with his redeeming blood. 
and he's wooing and he's drawing and he's saying, bring to me all of those places that you're weary and you're broken and you're tired and I will not only give you rest, I will reintegrate you. I will put you back together again. And the scripture says this, that in Christ Jesus, we are new creations. The old things have passed away. The broken pieces, all of the things that people used to remember about us are no more. We are new creations in God. Sure, you might have some bruises, People can still see the scars, but you know what those scars are? They are proof positive of a testimony of life that God has changed you. The scar didn't take you out. The scar is there as a reminder that God is faithful and God is good. Let's look at a story of integrity, integration versus disintegration. This is a scene, if you turn with me to 1 Samuel 24, This is a scene from the saga of the life of David and Saul. Remember that Saul was the first king of Israel and he was actually the people's choice. He was popular and God allowed him to be the king because the people wanted a king. And for a season and for a time, Saul was integrated. He was doing the right thing. He was really trying to to be that humble servant and lead the people well, but something happened throughout his leadership and he started to disintegrate and he began to drift. and, And instead of going to God, he would run further and further from God. So God called up a leader and chose a leader of his own stock and of his own name and his name was David. Now David actually was, was best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And so David was close enough to the king by association that he was watching this happen. And on the backside of a desert, God called the prophet to go and to anoint David king. Samuel went and he found and he looked at all the sons and none of them looked like the the ones. And so finally he called Jesse, is there any more boys that you have? You can read all this in, in 1 Samuel. And David came out of the shepherd's flock and he came and The Lord spoke to Samuel and said, that's the one, that's the Lord's anointed. He poured oil over him and he anointed him king. Now here's the problem. God, through a prophet, anointed David king in a private ceremony, but Saul was still king. David knew in his heart and life, this this integrity of his life, that he had been promised to be the king of all Israel. But the problem is there was already a king. And so he was already king, but not yet King. Okay, so, so parenthetically, let me insert. We live in this time where Jesus is already king, but not yet visibly ruling in our world and kings and kingdoms are no longer in, a, in allegiance and authority to him. This is a type and shadow. David's a type and shadow of Christ. But let's get to the story. Because David had been anointed king, yet he was waiting for the time to ascend to the throne. In 1 Samuel 24, we see this, this scene where Saul is now so mad that he had been rejected by God and the people were still uh, kind of saying, yeah, you're the king, but he knew that David was on his heels. And so he went after and searched for David. He was going to kill David. He thought, you know what? If I can't beat him out in popularity, I'll just kill him. I'll just get rid of him. And so now Saul is is following to, to find David and to kill him. And it says in verse one of 24, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, He was told, someone ratted out David. He was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So they gave up David's hiding spot. David's in the wilderness. Now we know from other accounts that David had a following, a a ragtag band of followers. It says David 
is in the wilderness and in Gedi, and his men were numbered about 400. At the height, they were about 400 men. That's all that, that he could gather around. Probably less than this scene, but by the height of the time, he had about 400 men. Let's watch this. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the shepherd's fold by the way where there was a cave. So Saul went in and relieved himself. I think he was going to the bathroom. He went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inmost parts of the cave. So Saul looks, he says, you know, wait here guys, I have to go use the restroom. And he goes into the front of this cave, a little bit of privacy. What he didn't realize was David and his men were deeper into the cave. One of David's men, a spy probably watching out, he was a watchman, he saw that the king has come into the front of the mouth of the cave. He runs to go tell David, your enemy is right there. And he is in a private place taking care of his business and all of his men are over here. Those 3,000, we're outnumbered 10 times almost. They're over there and he's over here alone all by himself at the front of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Is there a, a flag, a red flag being raised right here by anybody? Is there a bell ringing right here when it says it seems good to you? Haven't we read before in the Bible, if we go back to Genesis, that it looked as though the tree was good for eating. It seemed good. Anytime that you see in the scripture, this term seemed good, this is human calculation. This is the lower base level of carnality. This is what gets us all wrapped up and in trouble because it seems good. How could something that feels so good and seems so good be bad? How? I don't understand. Well, sometimes it's against the fruit of the spirit. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand you shall do what seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. David, I can imagine as he's sneaking, it says stealthily, he's being quiet. He's on the run for his life. He knows what it's like to sneak up on a, on a predator. And he gets close enough, even as close to King Saul that he could have killed him. Could he not? Saul's all by himself. David has about 400 men in the cave. He sneaks up. We know that David was very skilled at war. And this is one of the very things that made Saul mad at him. Because when David would go out to battle, he would have way more uh, casualties than Saul would. In fact, it got to the place where when the, the, the town would, would be allotting the king, they would say, Saul has killed a thousand, but David has killed his ten thousands. Can you imagine how Saul felt about that? He feels pretty good about 1,000 until here's David is being lauded for killing 10,000. So David could have easily taken out Saul. And what does he do? He cuts the corner of his robe. Now watch this. David had a chance to eliminate the threat on his life. It seemed like a perfect way to finally ascend to the throne and to be the promised king that he had treasured in his heart. His family had heard this promise given. He knew that this was eventuality, this was gonna happen. Samuel, as a prophet, he couldn't be wrong in what he prophesied. This was a prophet of God. It was almost like a God-given opportunity delivered right into his hand. 
And even on the side, you have David's companions encouraging him, saying, do as it seems good to you. This is perfect. David, it couldn't be any better. This is a slam dunk. It's your time. Now is your hour. Take the opportunity. Here's why we should be very careful with human wisdom. The apostle Paul said that when the call of God came on his life, he said, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. What was he saying? When God gives you a clear directive, it doesn't matter what other people think about it. They don't have an opinion regarding the calling on your life. They might be able to confirm, but don't let them talk you out of doing what God has called you to do. And don't let them push you off a cliff with their own aspirations and desires of how that something should be achieved. David's, he's got this cheerleading club saying, this is, this is the time. Now is your hour, David. But can you imagine how much self-control that this took for David to not just be like, well, this does seem like a pretty good opportunity. This does seem pretty amazing to me. I remember uh, my mentor and godfather, Billy Watson, told me years ago, he said, you know, when you're asking God for a decision, you have to understand that there are three things that have to line up. It's kind of like a ship coming into harbor. And, and when, you, when you go out to the uh, east coast and upward like around Maine, you can see that there are three lighthouses that are lined up in a row. And what they were, were there for was for ships that were out to sea is they could come clear into harbor if they saw one lighthouse. If they saw more than one, if they saw three, that means they're off to the side, one side or another, they're gonna dash into the rocks. If they saw two, they're a little bit better aligned, but they're still gonna dash into the rocks. But if they only saw one, it's full steam ahead, they're into harbor. And you have to go with the word of God, the confirmation of circumstances, how, how things are appearing, and that inner voice on the inside, what's God saying to you? You can't just take one thing because then you're gonna be off into the Craigs of the Rock. They could have easily convinced David, based on the circumstances, David, these are perfect circumstances, take it, seize it, kill him. But David had hid his, God's word in his heart, what? That he would not sin against God. This is why it's so important to know the word. Have a steady diet and, and digest God's word on a continual basis. I'm not talking about some reading list that you check off and say you felt good because you read through the Bible in a certain amount of time. Those are all fine and good. But if you're not actually digesting and hiding the word in your heart, then you're really just following a writ order of command. And so here's what he does. David is conflicted. Do I kill Saul or do I let him go? I have this promise from God. Do I take matters into my own hand? Well, David knew how that worked out for Father Abraham. Abraham took matters into his own hand. What did he end up with? An Ishmael. When God promised Isaac, he ended up with Ishmael. Why? Because he took matters into his own hand. Verse four says, do what seems good to you. This is why we need wisdom, discernment. Not what is right in our eyes, but what's right in God's eyes. Can I tell you that success is often not a very good teacher? When you've had a run of success, it can actually cause you to be a little bit proud and arrogant, thinking you'll never fail. David had a great run of success. He killed a bear. He killed a lion. The women were applauding him. He had killed his tens of thousands. But yet from his humble beginnings, he always remembered God. 
He always acknowledged and gave credit to God. He always realized it wasn't by David's pure might and strength. He was a scrawny little lad. It wasn't by his power and his intellect that he was able to outmaneuver all those tens of thousands and kill the bear and kill the lion. He always acknowledged God. This is only God. It's God. The Bible says this, it is the Lord your God who gives you power, he told the Israelites, to get wealth. The Israelites went out so wealthy that the Egyptians begged them to leave, and they went out with gold and silver and all kinds of wealth. If you ever doubt whose land that it is in the Middle East, go look at the Bible. It tells us that they were asked by Egypt, get up north, get out of here, go to another land. And God promised them a land, and they went and possessed the promised land. Now, they were for 40 years in a, in a wilderness first. Sorry, I'm getting all conflated in my stories. You know the Bible. But it is the Lord your God who gives you the power. David recognized this isn't my might and my ability. I got to honor God in this moment. And so what he does is he just cuts off the edge of the robe. David didn't kill Saul, but by cutting the robe, it was proof that he could have. Watch this. It was proof that he could have. Now we quickly conclude that David was being gracious isn't it easy to look at this and say, David was being gracious. That was an honorable thing for David to do. The enemy who surely would have killed him if the roles were reversed, David didn't kill him, he just cut off his robe. Again, David, a type of Christ. Look at verse five. And afterward, after cutting off the robe, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. He's talking about Saul. When he says the Lord forbid, he's talking about God. My Lord, his king is still Saul. But wait a minute, David, you were anointed king. Yeah, but the current king is still Saul. David had a keen awareness of spiritual authority. I would to God that in 2023, we would get a keen awareness of spiritual authority. It's not that you have to do it because the pastor said it, but by God, if I have said it by the voice of God, by the unction of God, and you don't do it, you're not disobeying me, you're disobeying God. And David said, I can't kill him. He's the Lord's anointed. They're like, wait a minute. He is sinful. He's debaucherous. He's doing all kinds of bad things to the people. He's trying to kill you, David. What do you mean? And it says that after David did this, his heart struck him. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord's anointed and put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Wow. Verse 7, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Here's what was happening. The guys were saying, fine, David, if you won't do it, give me the sword, I'll go do it. We've been waiting up in this cave. You know how many months we've been hiding out. We haven't been back to our families. We wanna go back to our homes. We've been hiding out with you. We've been on the run. If you're not gonna do it, I'm taking this opportunity. I'm gonna do it. David about had a rebellion on his hands, did he not? And he had to tell and persuade his men, calm down guys, wait a minute. We can't do it like this. We can't take matters into our own hands. The battle is not ours. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is Jehovah Nisi. He fights my battles. I don't fight these battles. Look how integrated that David was. A person who is integrated responds with even a shadow cast over their integrity. They respond with faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Can you see the integration in David's life in his response? 
He's going to be faithful to God. Whether Saul did him right or wrong, he's going to be faithful to God. He's going to be gentle towards the Lord's anointed, and he is going to control himself. Somebody said, that took a long time to get around to the fruit of the Spirit. I know, I'm on a journey. I'm going somewhere. It is faithful and gentle and self-control that David operated in that cave. And when it says in verse 5 that his heart troubled him, that's the New Testament equivalent of conviction. He was convicted in his heart. You can put it off for a long time, but it's that still small voice that continues to speak up. And God will be quiet for a long, long, long time. But finally, when that moment comes and your heart is convicted, you have to understand that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance is a good word. I know we don't like to preach it much in church today. Oh, pastor, don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about sin and hell and all of those negative things. People won't come to the church. Well, come or don't come. I'm under a mandate from God. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance for the conversion of the soul. Amen. I don't stand up here as just someone who's, who's speaking to Rose. I understand that every time I come up here, that someday I am going to give account before God for the deeds that I have done, for the things that I have said, whether I have faithfully stewarded over this sacred desk or not. That's on me. It's not on you. In fact, if we, if we really would read our Bibles, then we wouldn't be clamoring to be teachers because it says in here that teachers, they're going to have a more strict rule. There is a, a, a higher bar of answering to God for those who have taken Thus saith the name of the Lord in our mouths and spoken on behalf of God. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we have anything to fear. As long as, like David, we're integrated and we're operating in the fruit of the Spirit. See, David, now I'll fast forward a couple of verses. David went to the edge now of this cave after Saul had relieved himself and he was, he was walking on down the the hillside and David's men had already gathered. He had to put off that mutiny and that rebellion that was happening. We'll do it, David. He pushed them off and David said, let me take care of this. And he goes right out to the edge of the cave, out in the sunlight where he can be seen. Saul is way over there on that other mountain and he yells out to Saul and he says these words, my Lord, he still honors an unhonorable man, my Lord. I could have taken your life. And he bows down. The Bible said he bows down almost as an act of humility before Saul. He's not worshiping Saul, but he's honoring him. He bows down before him. Even though Saul's a long ways off, he holds up the corner of his robe to show him what I could have done to you. And in that moment, you see the integrity of one man's heart and the disintegrity or the disintegration in Saul who had gone a long way from God. He had gone a long way from the moment he was installed as Israel's first king. He could have followed God all the days of his life, but he drifted and he never came back. But it says, look at Saul's response. <laughs> he knows he'd been outmaneuvered by David. Look at Saul's response in verse 16. It says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Now, you can see the disintegration all in Saul. He's so conflicted. David was not his son biologically, but he was in his kingdom. 
He was a constituent of Saul's kingdom. He was in his inner court. He had served faithfully Saul by going out to battle and, and fighting for the king, but now he's on the run. And here's what Saul says. Is that the voice of my son, David? See, even in his disintegrated heart, he still recognized that David has been good to me. You ever had someone just be good to you and you know and you know her that you haven't been good to them? You know you've been talking bad and smack about them and here they go on and bless you. What's that do? Well, they must read the Bible because the Bible says when you bless those who curse you, it's like pouring hot coals of fire on their belly. Now don't be trying to bless somebody so they get burnt up, okay? I'm not saying that. People, people take scriptures all out of time. The pastor said, I just need to bless them. They're gonna burn the coals of fire. No, no. But that's what happens to us when we, when we are intentionally good to someone who has tried to harm us. And it says, as soon as David has finished speaking, Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. Honest admission. Was he being truthful? David, you're more honest than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you will get the opportunity for someone who has done you wrong to say, I'm sorry, I know I did you wrong. That wasn't right. Now, don't hold out hope for that. It may never happen. But sometimes you will have the opportunity, like David, to hear no truer words than Saul's admission that I've done you wrong and you still blessed me. You still did the right thing by me. Saul is humbled by the act of grace and get this, self-control that David displayed. Saul is humbled by the self-control that when David had the chance to kill him, he didn't do it. He displayed gentleness and faithfulness to God by controlling himself. And he even acknowledges his own complete and utter disintegration. Saul says, in other words, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed that as king, with all the power and authority that I have, that I have acted like this. Now, unfortunately, Saul's repentance was short-lived because he never truly dealt with his inner disintegration. He felt sorry for the moment. He patched things up. He gave lip service. He said the right things. But he truly never dealt with the disintegration of his soul. Let me give you a word from the Lord today. Don't be like Saul. Don't forget the grace and the goodness of God that got you out of that hard spot, that you escaped by the skin of your teeth and you told God, God, if you get me out of this one, I will fill in the blank. The Bible says it's better never to make a vow than to make a vow before God and break it. You better just not even say it. Preacher, you're trying to scare me. I would to God I could scare you, but Hollywood's already taken away that tool out of the preacher's belt. We can't scare you no more. There's way better things in Hollywood that can scare you. But what we still have is the spirit of God 
that moves up and down these aisles and it goes to that camera that goes into someone's television that gets onto their devices. They're watching this months and years later and there is a conviction of the soul. There is this churning. There is this yearning that, you know, I've drifted. God, I'm not where I used to be. God, I want to be closer to you. I don't want to be like Saul. I don't want to have this merciless life. I don't want to be a person who forgets God's grace. I don't want to be a person who just lives and heaps unto myself all of my pleasures. I want you, God. I want to serve you. So as we conclude this series on the fruit of the Spirit, I want to ask each of us to do a personal inventory with heads bowed and eyes closed. This is between you and God. There's no fruit inspectors in here. There's nobody that's going to try to measure and size you up, but this is between you and God. I want you to do an inventory of your own fruit. And I want to ask you this probing question personally, individually, are there areas of disintegration in your life right now today? Are there areas of disintegration in your life, but deep inside you wanna be integrated? You really truly want to be made whole. If that's you, then I've got good gospel news for you. Because if you will just bring to King Jesus, the broken pieces of your life. If you will just take one step toward him today, it doesn't matter how far you've drifted, how far away. If you will just take one step to the cross today, then you can be made whole. It's as simple as this, praying a prayer like this, God help me, God help me. I'm lost in a way, God help me. I'm disintegrated. Jesus, I call to you. Forgive me, Jesus. I repent today. I acknowledge your gift of grace in my life. And Lord, I never want to spurn that grace. I want to walk in faithfulness, in gentleness, in self-control today. If you'll bring those pieces to Jesus while they get ready to pray, while they get ready to sing, all we have to do is stop trying to produce fruit. And all we need to do is connect to the vine. Jesus is the true vine. And as we stay connected to the vine, then we will bear fruit. We will display fruit. As they sing, these altars are open. You can come down here and pray or you can pray at your seat. The important thing is talk to God.